Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Wei Yo. Wei is the co-founder of Umbo, a social enterprise bridging the gap for rural children to access allied health services. He's a physiotherapist from Sydney with a diverse background, having travelled through remote parts of Asia, volunteered with people with disabilities in Vietnam, interned in India, and studied Mandarin in Beijing. But his biggest adventure of all is just today as it's unfolding now as he's on the Talking Health Tech podcast in Sydney. Wei, how are you going? Good. Thanks, Pete. Very exotic and exciting to be here after that intro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is the wildest adventure you'll have at least today. But we, <laughs> So let's see how we go. You're a Sydney cider as well. Yeah, I'm based in Sydney. And we were just chatting before, of course, about how lucky we are to be in New South Wales in a very well-functioning healthcare system, having lived in other parts of the world where this kind of stuff just doesn't exist. The idea of you know, universal healthcare and contact tracing, and it's a bit of a gamble. So I think I'm just constantly, every day, very grateful for the opportunity to live here. Amazing. What a good way to start. So let's kick into it then. Let's start with yourself, Wade. Tell us a little bit about your story and, and all about you. My background is a physiotherapist originally. For, I worked for a physio for a couple of years as a physio. And then I realised that after doing that, working in the public healthcare system, it wasn't really me. I'd graduated as a physio, but I'd done it because of the typical reason that I was either going to work for the Australian Wallabies or the Brazilian women's beach volleyball team, neither of which came to fruition. And I'm sure there's a lot of competition for those positions. And I decided that I had to do something different. So I went overseas and traveled through Asia. And I just realized when I was there, how little there was for a lot of people that living in countries like Vietnam, Cambodia, India, China, places where I spent a lot of time. The rest of it is I ended up in Cambodia. And what I realized in Cambodia was that there are no speech therapists in the whole country. And this is a problem that affects over half a million people and yet not a single person to be able to support these people. And that was a really key moment for me to work out what I really wanted to do with my life. And I never had the ambition to start anything until I was in that situation where I had to start something. And that was the very first of now four social enterprises and charities that I've been involved with, starting with Cambodia. Calling It's called OIC Cambodia. You've got a few different projects on the go. Tell us a little bit more about the other things that you do. That project OIC Cambodia is starting the profession. And, and the key part of that is we actually want the Cambodian government to own this solution. And the other key part of it, I think it's very, it's just not right, I think, for foreigners like myself to be leading initiatives in countries like Cambodia. I really do push back on that idea that well-meaning Westerners should be in charge. And so what I'm really proud of is that of the two organizations in Cambodia I was involved with starting OIC Cambodia and Happy Kids Clinic, the latter being a for-profit clinic that gives all of its profit to the first. They're both led by local Cambodian women. And to me, that's really awesome and really great to see them carrying on the work. So I'm supporting them from afar. And then in Australia, we've got two entities, one of which is called OIC Australia, which not surprisingly supports OIC Cambodia. What it does is it runs a program called Day Without Speech. We go into schools, we give kids the opportunity to give up talking for part of the day. We also challenge them to challenge their parents to do the same. Mm. And then they raise awareness and raise money. And then the final thing, which is shouldn't be a footnote because it's just a huge thing, is UMBO. And that's a social enterprise where we are helping people in rural Australia with access to speech and occupational therapy online. 
That's cool. And so a day without speech, it would be a very boring day on the podcast. But the, <laughs> <laughs> the, what made you go from physiotherapy through to, I guess, speech pathology? It's always been ingrained in me. And we're very fortunate in this country. I think culturally in Australia, we do tend to go for the underdog. And to me, speech pathology and occupational therapy amongst allied health professions are less well known than even physiotherapy, which doesn't exactly have the highest profile compared to medicine or nursing. So when I was in Cambodia, there was physiotherapy there. And there are physiotherapists that are working in public settings and there is a university course to address that, but there's no speech therapist at all. And to me, that is absolutely mind boggling. Similarly in Australia with UMBO, when we talk about access to healthcare in rural communities, it seems like speech and occupational therapy is very commonly spoken about as, as being problematic, particularly for kids. Mm. And the thing is that when kids don't get it early, their chances of improving diminish. And it just means they, they're not set up for a good life. There's an incredible statistic coming out of the UK. It says 60% of juvenile offenders have some kind of communication difficulty, 60%. Okay. Without the ability to communicate, what kind of a future do you have? Not a very good one. Very important. And so, Umbo, let's dig into it a little bit more. Tell me a bit more about what it is and what problems it solves. The situation in rural communities for a lot of these families are excessive wait times. And by excessive, I'm meaning up to 18 months. There are a lot of communities that we're working with at the moment who are waiting 18 months to get a service. Now, you imagine, you've mentioned, Pete, you've got young kids. Imagine one of them is four years old. They've got to wait 18 months to see a clinician. And then, of course, there's a time period after that where there's an effect of that therapy. So let's say best case scenario, they're starting to show signs of improvement at the age of six, maybe even seven. By that stage, they're ready in school, they're behind their peers, they've lost confidence, they can't learn as effectively as they could, they're not reaching their potential. And so what we're trying to do is use the power of online to match the supply and the demand. So we have therapists all over Australia, we match them to families all over Australia, and then we cut wait times down from 18 months to hopefully as little as a week. Wow, that's quick. Yeah, and such an important time in anyone's development, those early days. So 18 months does yeah. really make a difference. R running during 2020, obviously through COVID, what impact has COVID had on your business model and what do you think it'll look like after all of this? COVID for a lot of businesses has been very tough. And we're one of the fortunate few where COVID has opened doors really because as a purely online social enterprise, we knew that the uptick in terms of demand would be there for this kind of a service. I mean, I would love to say that we predicted that something like COVID was going to come along when we started Umbo two and a half years ago. Not quite that psychic, but we certainly knew for one that we were on a, a trend which was unstoppable. And that is the online delivery of health. As of course, this whole podcast is about that space between technology and health. We knew we were on something good. And then COVID really helped us to accelerate in terms of uptake and demand. So we saw some incredible statistics like 5,800% growth in demand for our training. That's when clinicians want to go from being face-to-face -face practitioners to online. We saw a 500% increase in client demand. And we saw the team grow from five to now 17. So it's really been a very transformational year for us. That's in about eight months. It's been a really transformational year for us in 2020. And what we've been able to do, I guess, is to prove the point that 
the online delivery of the healthcare service is the way to go in the future. It really does future-proof your business. So you mentioned there the providers going online and, and learning a little bit. So it sounds like you do a little bit more than just to speech pathology mm. via telehealth. Right at the beginning of COVID in March, I don't know if you can recall how you felt at that time. I've tried to forget so much about 2020. So yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> and March 2020 feels like 10 years ago. You probably feel internally, not externally, of course, but internally you probably feel like you've aged 10 years in eight months. So Lucky it's a podcast, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a time where there was just so much uncertainty and so much panic. And so we knew that providers were, you know, really unsure about how they were going to ever see clients again. So what we did was we launched a couple of online summits to help people free of charge to be able to go online and then also release a lot of resources as well for our families to be able to continue going with their therapy, even if they're not able to book sessions with therapists. And, and so that was really important for us to then do that. But that has also led to a few more things, as you mentioned. So what, what we try and do is our whole point is that we're not trying to take away work from rural communities. We know there are rural clinicians out there that could easily service further afield, but they're just spending so much time traveling. Of course, if you travel five hours in the car to get to see one family, that's not particularly efficient. So if we can help to build up the capacity of these rural clinicians to go further afield, I think we've done something really significant there. Completely. That's, that'll add a lot of value to the entire ecosystem, for sure. And I think there's things that can be learnt across not just speeches and occupational health as well that can be relevant anywhere within the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. Just thinking then more generally, you know, about your approach towards, you've built some pretty interesting enterprises, hearing about what you're doing in Cambodia as well as this with Umbo. How do you go about starting something like that? Like what are the steps to doing something meaningful like you're doing, Way? I think it differs person to person. For me, as I mentioned, I never set out to be a founder. It was never something in my horizon, but it was really something that in retrospect makes a lot of sense. I had a conversation yesterday with a colleague about, do you think you could go back to working for someone else? And very quickly, we were shaking our heads going, probably not, mm -hmm. but you never say never, of course. So I think there are certain qualities about a founder and, and that can be a, a sole founder or a co-founder. It could be a joiner, an early team member as well, that are really important to to building something valuable. Obviously, it goes without saying the sense of purpose, passion, being really hardworking. Those are all really important facets that I think anyone would say. I would add to that something very important to me, and that's a, a sense of um, humility and also taking your ego out of the equation, particularly when you're talking about social enterprise and charity. So what I mean by that is that it's very easy, and, and I'll give you one example. I was working in China, a while ago and I was flying back to Australia and I was thinking in my head playing out a conversation where people would ask me what I was doing over there mm. and these thoughts how would I describe what I do and these thoughts came into my head about labels like non-profit founder and aid worker and charity founder and then I caught myself doing that thinking what why am I having this conversation because it the label doesn't make sense what's more important is what I actually do when you're doing something in that space of doing good it's very easy for your ego to attach to that project. And then what happens is every time the project goes well, your ego is soaring. And every time things go poorly, your ego tends to dip. I think that's common with all founders, of course, but even more so when people are saying to you, oh, you're such a good person. 
Hmm. So one of the very key things is to take your ego out of the equation. And that's why to me, it's easier for me to have left two organizations that I was involved with starting and saying, you know what, I don't know. I'm not the best person to lead this organization. You have local Cambodian people that understand the culture and the language and the nuance and political systems take me out of the equation. I'm more than happy to support in terms of decision-making. It's got to be local people. And I've seen a lot of founders, I think, where that tends to go badly, particularly charity founders, I think, where they're just not able to let go in a short enough time frame. And for me, it's really important to let go early, slightly too early. That's the best time to do it. Slightly too early. I like that. That can be hard, especially I would imagine for a charity or, or for a, a purpose of doing something good where I would imagine there's a lot of emotion involved and that's the reason why you do it. It's not a financial you know, return that you're getting from it. So there's something driving you internally to do this on a day to day to be mm. able to leave that early. That sounds great in theory to say, but I imagine would be harder to do in practice. So there's probably a few... They'll be like, I get it, but I can't right now away. So <laughs> to those people, and that was me, definitely, let's say five or six years ago, that yeah. was definitely me. To those sort of people in that situation, what I would say is to look internally at yourself. It's like that line about everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to change themselves. Hmm. And I think for me, it was a lot of looking internally and self-reflections and really ugly self-conversations and holding a mirror up to all the ugly parts of my personality and seeing that there was something there that was holding me back from being able to let go, be it ego, be it control, be it perfectionism or whatever, or a sense of self-righteousness. But there are very simple things that you can do. Part of that to disassociate yourself is just don't make your life about that one enterprise. You know, you've got to have other passions. We were talking about 2020 being a tough year. I'm not sure about you, Pete, but for my circle of friends, the people that have done the best mentally are those that have creative passions that are not work, whether it's music or in my case, yeah, well, it is a little bit of music, music or art or writing stand-up comedy, whatever it is, it's got to be something that's really not related. No, that's good advice. I think uh, a previous guest, it was Henrik from PhysioTrack mentioned everyone should have a side hustle. And I forget when that was, but that was the midst of COVID. It wasn't even a COVID question. It was everyone should have a, a side hustle, even if they're running a full-time job, whether it's a, a commercial one or it's a passion project, it's good to have multiple streams. Having an end date in mind, whether yeah. or not it's spoken or written. And one of the charities in Cambodia, OIC Cambodia, has a very clear end date for that charity. So it says the, the charity will dissolve when we have uh, 100 therapists that are integrated into the public sector by 2030. And that as a concept in a charity is unheard of globally. Mm. But I think personally, having an end date and having discussion about it too. So we've already had those discussions at UMBO with our co-founders about what kind of timeframes do we think it's reasonable for, for example, for me to remain CEO when probably we'll get to a point where I'm not actually the best person to do it. It sounds like we're, it's almost like investing. You, you diversify portfolio and then you've got your exit strategy. It's all laid out there. There's some, some definite synergies there. Yeah. Hey, look, th thinking on about say healthcare, obviously Umbo operating within the healthcare space, providing healthcare services, uh, you yourself being a leader within the organization, but also coming across a lot of other healthcare leaders within the industry. Do you have any advice for leaders within this space that they should be taking on board as they lead into this new normal? Oh, the new normal. Who's to know what's that, what that's going to look like? I, I guess leveraging a little bit about what we were talking about with the humility and the egolessness, if that is a word. Mm. The, the, the beauty of that is that I think then you're not tied to one particular outcome. You're flexible enough to say, I think this is what it is, but I'm not really sure. And 
this is very complete antithesis of what we are told to talk about in the startup world. We're told as founders to say stuff like we are the best and we will be the best and we'll be the biggest. We don't say that. We just say, we know that this is a problem, which is really pressing. It may not be the biggest problem. Who knows? We think we've got something really valuable to add, but we have no desire to be, for example, market leader. That's not important to us. We just want to make sure that we're adding value to this very important social problem. How we go about doing it is really not that clear, even after two and a half to three years, because we want to make sure we're creating structural change rather than just addressing symptoms. And, And a lot of that comes from, I think, that ability to say, I'm not really too sure. And dealing with that complexity and dealing with doubt, I'll just end this little bit. There's a beautiful Voltaire quote where he says, doubt is not a pleasant condition but absolute certainty is absurd. And I think that should be tattooed on the inside of our eyelids, if that is mm. possible, because <laughs> it is a really good one. No, that is really good. And it's, it's very apt for this year as well. So that's particularly helpful. You know, you mentioned before, there's been some great growth with Umbo, with the team and the patient numbers and everything that you've done. And that's fantastic. No doubt there would have been some mistakes or some learnings that you've had along the way too. Is there anything that you take as some lessons learned through the last 12 months, let's say, that you'll then leverage off and do something different on? Oh yeah, definitely. For me, with my background in nonprofit, nonprofits don't tend to scale quickly as opposed to Umbo, which is a for-profit social enterprise. So obviously we have a different structure and we can scale quicker. And that's what happened this year, even with all the metrics you can think of. What I've learned in that process of scale is that it's usually five steps forward and two steps backwards. Mm-hmm. And the five steps forward phase for us was, let's say, March to June, when our numbers were just going mental, we were adding new team members and everything was looking really rosy. It was hard to keep up. We were adding more than one team member a week. They turn up on a Monday and even I'd be thinking, oh, who's this person again? What are they doing? What I learned was the five steps forward phase is easy. The two steps backward phase is hard, but it is the most valuable part because five steps forward is not sustainable. You can't do that forever. The two steps forward, two steps back, sorry, phase is a little bit of time for you to bed down really key parts of the business that are tangible and non-tangible. So non-tangible things like getting that culture and leadership sense of purpose really right and making sure everyone understands why you're doing what you're doing so they can make really good decisions. Of course, the tangible things are your policies and your procedures and structures and, you know, organizational charts and all that kind of stuff that is financial projections that Mm. is the the core of any business. And and so I think that two steps backwards phase for us is coming to an end now. I feel like it's starting to get back towards five steps forward, but I think that five steps forward phase that we're about to hit is going to be easier and more productive because we've done that hard work for the last few months. I know a couple of guys who feel like they're at the same time taking five steps forward and two steps back. So it feels like they're doing the bit of the splits here, but it's good to be getting that mind frame at those particular times and, and get those foundations. I think that choosing the right time to do that is important. Obviously it's different for, for everyone, but for me, a really key part of being able to operate well is having time to think. And yes. thinking is a very underrated skill, I think, in a culture, in a time, in an era that is so based on doing. So I know that I need space to think, and there are a whole bunch of strategies to get to that. But if I didn't do that as a CEO, I'm not really leading with anything apart from just adrenaline, which is terrible, and probably testosterone, which is even worse. Without thinking about that's such a instinctual thing to do, especially when you are in that five steps forwards phase, without 
thinking about the why or the potential repercussions it can be dangerous to do but with all good intentions in mind so looking forward then as we close things out way what's in the future what's the next 6 12 18 months look like for you guys we have just gone through this period where we've been in a couple of accelerators and programs including one called scaling impact and another program called genesis which is part of sydney uni so we've been really fortunate in both those one of the demo days finished the next one is next week which might be couple of weeks before when this podcast is released, but around this time that has helped us to get impact investment ready. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is to take what we've done so far and use all of those lessons and understandings of pain points and traction that we've got and turn it into a platform that we hope to develop in partnership with a few other people to really make sure that people can access their choice of provider so they can go on and find the right provider. And also that the platform works for the form of therapy that we do, which is very person-centric and really puts the person as the expert in their own lives. So it's a really exciting time for us. At the same time, our day-to-day services in terms of doing therapies growing exponentially because we're getting more and more referrals. We're seeing more and more demand. And so we are always hiring speech and occupational therapists. And that one, I'm positive regardless of when this podcast is released, it's still going to be current. If there are any speech and occupational therapists that are interested in helping people in rural communities, particularly children, get access to online therapy, we are always hiring. Do check out the website. Perfect. I'll put that website and and other bits and pieces that we've talked about and resources from this episode in the show notes and the blog um, article for this episode when it's released. Look, way there's so many cool stories there and so many avenues we could go down to talk even longer, but we'll leave it there and let others do their exploring and find out those things and look forward to seeing how everything goes for you next year. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Pete. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Make sure you go check out our website for all our resources, including this podcast and the largest directory of technology solutions available to Australian healthcare practitioners today. Until next time, I'm out of here.